Hello and welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Stand. Stand is a 2019 Canadian film based on a 2005 stage musical called Strike. The film is set during the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919, and the plot revolves around a Romeo and Juliet-style couple of recent immigrants whose families disapprove because they come from different ethnic and religious backgrounds. The two of them get involved in the strike during their love story. The movie's not the easiest to find. I was able to access it through my local library, so you can check there, but I'll also include a link in the description for this episode that outlines where you can stream it. For those who don't know, the Winnipeg General Strike was a major strike in 1919 that essentially shut down the city's economy. At the time, Winnipeg was Canada's third largest city and a vital industrial hub in the nation's economy. Over 30,000 workers joined the strike, which was about one-sixth of the city's population at that time. The strike lasted six weeks before ultimately failing when Winnipeg's mayor called in the Northwest Mounted Police to break it. Though the strike did not succeed in any immediate improvements to the lives of workers, and in fact many suffered consequences for participating in the strike, it's remembered as an important event in the history of labor and capitalism in Canada. On today's podcast, we talk about how Stan depicts the history of the strike, labor, relations between different ethnic groups, and much more. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Nick Fast. Nick is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto whose research focuses on the history of labor and capitalism in North America. More specifically, his work compares meatpacking industries in Winnipeg and Chicago, so his expertise in the history of labor in Winnipeg make him a great fit for this episode. Let's get into it. excited to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine from my PhD program at the University of Toronto, Nick Fast. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lewis. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Could you please introduce yourself to the listeners and tell them a bit about what your research is all about? Yeah, of course. It's an honor to be here. I'm a third-year PhD candidate at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. In a broad sense, my research focuses on the history of labor and capitalism in North America. And my current dissertation topic studies the transnational effects of technology and deindustrialization on meatpacking plants in Winnipeg and Chicago. But I am and have been trained as a Canadianist and a Canadian labor historian is where I have come from. Very cool. And we've picked a very Winnipeg topic for our podcast today. Yes. Today we're talking about the film, the musical film, Stand. Stand is obviously set in Winnipeg. It's about the Winnipeg general strike. And and you used to live in Winnipeg, right? Yeah, I lived there. I went to the University of Manitoba in my first year. And that was, that was 2013, 2014 when they had the giant polar vortex. Oh, right. A fun time to be in the prairies. Absolutely. No, un- unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, I grew up in Saskatoon, but a lot of my extended family lives in Winnipeg. And so we used to go to Winnipeg a lot. So uh, I have a lot of memories of the St. Vital Center, the St. Vital Mall. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the for- the Forks, that like weird nutty club ad on the side of that old building. Right, right. I forget what building that was, but I know exactly what one you're talking about. I think it's still there. Yeah, it is. It is. It's near the baseball stadium. Right. Anyway, now that we've established our Winnipeg cred. <laughs> <laughs> our Winnipeg roots. Yep. Today we're talking about Stan. This is a this is a 2019 film, musical film. 
all about essentially a, a Romeo and Juliet type story during the Winnipeg General Strike. Let's go over the plot briefly for people who haven't seen the movie or, or haven't seen it in a while. And I, I will now say to people, this is spoiler territory if you want to watch it, watch it first. But we're going to summarize the plot here. So the two main characters of the movie are these two immigrants from different backgrounds. One of them is a Ukrainian young man, a Ukrainian Catholic young man, and the other is a Jewish immigrant woman. We never learn actually what, what country she's from, but she is of Jewish background. And they've moved into this... An apartment block. Yeah, apartment block. And it, sort of just before the Winnipeg General Strike. And the Ukrainian-Canadian man... Uh, his name's Stefan, Stefan Sokolowski, I think. It was Stefan Sokolowski. Okay. He and his father are trying to raise money to bring the rest of their family over to Canada. Whereas the young woman, Rebecca, I don't actually remember her last name at the moment either. I believe it's Rebecca Almazov. Okay, thank you. So she's getting involved with the labor movement. And eventually she's part of the group that brings about the Winnipeg General Strike. And Stefan is as well, although he has this difficult relationship because he wants to support the labor movement and he wants to support Rebecca, but he also needs to send money back to his family. And so his father is trying to get him to take scab jobs so that they can keep having an income and that sort of thing. And that's the source of a lot of the, the conflict in the story is this, this tension. But the this is all set during the Winnipeg General Strike, and so workers are uh, across many different jobs are are leaving their workplaces, and the capitalists and and supporters of capitalists are attempting to get them to come back through various coercive means, through demonizing them in the press and and drumming up anti-immigrant sentiment because a lot of the the workers are immigrants. Eventually getting the government to call in the police to suppress protest and, and passing laws that will prevent organizing, that sort of thing. And that's essentially the, the big overarching flow of the story. Yeah, it's, it's very much, there's a, a conflict between, you know, uh, Stefan's sort of understanding of wanting to be empathetic and, and sympathetic towards the working, the immigrant workers in Winnipeg mm -hmm. and, how Rebecca sort of represents this this vision of what he sees and and sort of a desire, and then his his father is very much at the mindset of no, we have to keep working money. And I think at one point in the film he says we've always like our family has always worked through strikes, kind of thing. Mm. And this somewhat backed up by the idea of, and I think we'll get to this later, where some of the members of the were, the strikers committee were expressing quote unquote radical ideas mm -hmm. and, and sort of less about workers and wages, like wage working conditions, wages, and more about the overthrow of, a, of the capital system and, and the government itself. And that's where Stefan and his father really sort of are, are less inclined to join the strike because they were running from the Soviet union right. and the Bolsheviks. And, and then the other side of this, story is the 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 citizens committee that was concocted by 
some of the members of or some of the capitalist elite in Winnipeg to try and represent and and drum up you know anti-immigrant sentiment and and try to bring sympathy to you know to bring down the strike and and to essentially discredit some of the means and methods and goals of the strike itself. Right. Yeah. At the end of the story, also, I should I should maybe tell people how it ends. This is very spoilery if you want to watch it. But in the end, Stefan learns that his family back in Ukraine have died as in the events of the Russian Revolution, so there's no one to send money back to anymore. Eventually, his father is decides to support him and his relationship with Rebecca, which originally there's a lot of like ethnic tension and, and religious tension about that relationship. But he is killed in, in a, by the police in a protest. At the end of the movie, Rebecca and Stefan are still together, but the strike has failed. So that's an overview of the movie. I think that overview might be confusing if you don't know about the history of the Winnipeg General Strike. So for people who are not familiar with the Winnipeg General Strike, can you tell us a little bit about what it was, why it happened, why it failed? Yeah, of course. It, briefly, the Winnipeg General Strike was a, a, an action or a job action, or essentially what it is, a general strike mm-hmm. by almost 30,000 workers in the city of Winnipeg for six weeks. And that's what makes it so significant is it's one of those strikes that has been, it's not necessarily the longest in history or the, the most violent in history, but just at, in that particular moment, there were a few things that sort of a few factors that compounded to create this massive moment that is still quite celebrated today. And we can talk a little bit about that later (laughs) is you know, but for the why the strike happened, you know, many historians point to at the time rising unemployment, social unrest, and inflation in Canada as the First World War ended as some of the contributing factors that led towards the strike. Right. This is in 1919. Yeah, this is 1919. So in, in 1918, the First World War ends and about, uh, so November 11th, 1918, and this is about seven months later. And in that time, we have World War One veterans coming home, trying to find their jobs, finding that they're, and this was sort of brought up in one of the scenes early in the film where a couple of soldiers are trying to get work and they're not able to because Stefan and his father are, have been sort of hired in their place for that day. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of what was going on domestically in Canada, but also, you know, 18 months prior was the Russian Revolution. And a lot of workers, even though they might not necessarily agree with a Bolshevik-style authoritarianism, were enlightened to the idea or, or saw in a concrete way the workers or the working class taking over and, and actually having a government or like a workers' government. And so this was a very big influence not only on the workers themselves, but also the capitalists and politicians and the employers of Canada who were very frightened and like, and, and very frightened that this could happen anywhere. Cause if it could happen in Russia, because Russia was an absolute monarchy, it could happen in Canada. So May 15th, 1919 protesting poor working conditions and deplorable wages, the metal and building trades walked out, but at the encouragement of the Winnipeg trades and labor council, so did most of the other unions as well. 
almost 30,000 workers total. Mm-hmm. The strike went on for six weeks and completely halting the work in the city, but that doesn't mean that the city or in itself stopped working. Yep. There were committees that were set up to help with essential services, to keep you know things going. Like There were f- lots of food kitchens to help feed strikers, lots of support networks. Yeah, and for people who don't know a lot about Canadian history or Canadian geography, I'll also add Winnipeg at this period is a very powerful, important industrial city. And sort of similar, I think, in, as, you, as your research points out, similar in the history of the Canadian economy to something like Chicago in the United States, mm-hmm. where it's this important hub between East and West, and at this, in this period, an important industrial base. Yeah, and you know, Winnipeg is colloquially known as the Chicago of the North, mm-hmm. and it is you know mainly for its architecture style so a lot of architects from chicago went and designed buildings in winnipeg so if you go into winnipeg's downtown core like near market square hmm. there are you could find buildings that are very similar to what you would have found in chicago at the time but also there were a number of a number of millionaires i think it was like the most millionaires north of chicago were in winnipeg so hmm. you know there was a lot of close ties and in in its geography is both considered gateways to the west so during the the late 19th century and early 20th century you had to go either like if you were going from new york to south dakota you went through chicago if you were going from toronto to saskatoon you had to go through winnipeg so these were considered gateways or or the the last sort of euro canadian settlements before or euro american settlements before this what was considered wrongfully the open prairie or or the vast prairie. Right. So essentially, you know, throughout the strike, what, what ended up happening for those who are completely, or who are not really aware, you know, many of the government and upper class society sought ways to discredit the strike as another extension of the Bolshevik revolution, though, you know, many, many accounts cite that there was little evidence to actually support Bolshevik agents in Mm -hmm in the ranks of these people mm-hmm. and, and eventually, you know, the government brought the Northwest mounted police, the RCMP's predecessor to help put down the strike. And so on the 21st of June, it was a Saturday. It was also known as bloody Saturday because a peaceful March turned into a riot and the Northwest mounted police essentially fired upon the crowd and killing two and injure, injuring many others. So what do you think then is, is the strikes significance? Why is it an important event that a lot of Canadians at least know about, and maybe people who are not Canadian like maybe should know about? Yeah, the Winnipeg General Strike was sort of that that again, as I said earlier, this culmination of so many social factors and economic factors coalescing into one event that people could point to and say like that is a movement of of the working class or the workers or immigrants taking control or or really showing the power of labor. Mm -hmm. I think the ultimate irony is that we can, we'll talk about a little later is that the strike was ultimately a failure Mm -hmm. after the, after bloody Saturday, all the workers went back to work, you know, a few days later, they signed, you know, contracts that were not because remember, uh, union recognition was not a thing until 1944 in Canada under PC 1003. And the, the, the workers basically didn't gain anything. They, they didn't win any sort of 
you know, eight hour work days or they didn't get any wage increases or they didn't get any like extended vacations or, or better pay or anything of that sort. Mm. But I think what the significance is, is that it shows what can happen or sort of the power of the general strike mm. and, and how not, not just having one sector or one union walk off the job, but every union walk off the job mm. is, is the, it provides the power of this working like this, not necessarily workers government, but shows the power of the working class and where, what they can accomplish if they work in unison. Hmm. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So I want to get into some of the more specific things we see happening in the movie sort of piece by piece. And I want to start with one of the early scenes that you already mentioned, which is one of the early scenes we see Stefan and his father going to work at the pump house, I think it is. Yes. And there are a couple of First World War veterans who show up and I guess they have recently returned from Europe and they want their jobs back and they're angry that these Eastern European immigrants who they they don't like, they're, they're very bigoted, um, they, they don't like these Eastern European immigrants and they want to get their, what they feel like are the jobs that they are entitled to back. And this is generally a tension throughout the movie is immigrant workers mostly against these veterans. We see actually a, one counterexample where there's an indigenous veteran who joins the strike, but generally it's, it's immigrant workers in opposition to veterans. How does this compare to the historical reality? Is that pretty accurate? Would you say? Well, I think with or this tension as with, you know, as with any historical film adaptation might be a little oversimplified. Mm -hmm. So, Although there were many veterans who did come back and, and found that their jobs had been replaced, and it's true that immigrant workers were hired at lower wages than Anglo-Canadian workers were, mm -hmm. there were just as many veterans who opposed the strike as those who were in it or who were mm -hmm. for it. So, you know, indeed, immigrant workers were used in place of those who volunteered to fight overseas, especially because they could pay them less, th employers could pay them less than Anglo-Canadians. Mm -hmm. But, you know... Many of the Anglo-Canadians who went over to fight were themselves workers. Right. The economic depression of 1911-1912 had a lot of working people struggling. And in 1914, when Canada was called to fight with at the side of the British Empire, people were many workers were saying either if they weren't going out of this, out of a sense of patriotism because many Anglo-Canadians were either first generation from English immigrants or themselves born in England, they went over for a sense of patriotism. Many of them went over because it was a job. It was a paycheck. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, meals and clothing, things that they didn't have. They might not have had two years prior. So this idea that a group of people went over, a group of soldiers went over and, and fought and then came back and didn't have their jobs. And therefore all soldiers were, you know, against the strike is, not a hundred percent true, but those elements certainly do exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we also get the sense from the movie that those soldiers are are not just angry that their jobs are gone, but they specifically don't like these Eastern European immigrants. And they also, you know, at one point they walk in and break up a labor meeting, uh, a strike meeting, and they start accusing them of being disloyal to the British Empire, to Canada, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Was was that also a, a significant tension at the time 
Well, I think many immigrants who were in First World War, so first and second generation immigrants from Ukrainian families or Austro-Hungarians or German families Mm -hmm. were themselves sent to prison camp. And a former University of Toronto student actually has written a a very compelling book on that, Uh, Ukrainians in prison camps during the First World War. Mm -hmm. A lot of Canadians and 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 people familiar with the history of Canada are aware of the Second World War and the Japanese internment camps, but really the First World War camps are are not as written about. Mm. So I think there's still some... Indeed, there's still some tension there, but I, I don't know if it's as much as a, an, like an ethnic tension as more of like a class tension. Hmm. That's interesting. And they do mention in the movie that the two characters, Stefan and, and his father, have spent time in one of these internment camps as well. And so, so I think that the suggestion there is that there's a lot of, there's still latent ethnic cultural tensions around or, or di- mistrust of these Eastern Euro- European Canadians. Yeah, sort of branding someone's loyalty based on where they were born. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, this is a theme that unfortunately continues through a lot of Canadian history right up until yeah. the, the present. But yeah. it's certainly something that is, is not new or unfortunately it's not unsurprising mm-hmm. for that particular moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also related to these issues of ethnic tension and that sort of thing, when the movie is depicting the strikers, it tends to portray the labor movement as very capacious, generally very inviting of different ethnic groups, genders, etc. There are, obviously in the movie, and, and I think I, we maybe didn't mention this in the our summary of the plot, but it should be mentioned, one of the key tensions of this sort of Romeo and Juliet story is that the families of each of the lovers don't like the other that much because of their ethnicity or religion and or religion, because one is Ukrainian Catholic and the other is Jewish. So the, the families don't like each other that much. But aside from these sort of personal relationships between the lovers and their families, the labor movement itself is depicted as pretty harmonious and collaborative. A lot of different groups of people are represented. We see black workers, we see, as I mentioned, an indigenous veteran, we see women in leadership roles, all working together pretty effectively. Do you think this is a, an accurate representation of the Winnipeg strike? When I saw that, I was kind of taken aback because my understanding of labor movements and unions in this period is that they were often very deeply bigoted and very exclusively for white men or, or that sort of thing. Yeah, and you're right, and not many people realize this, but the labor movement during this period was really bigoted. There was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment within the within unions and 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 the labor movement as a whole. You know, and and one of the things I find really interesting is that the labor movement, in some sense, tried to justify this bigotry as altruistic. Hmm. So, for example, it's not really shown in this film, but organized labor groups in Vancouver, which is my hometown, you know, recognize that Chinese immigrants were being paid much less than themselves. So, but instead of attempting to raise the wages of immigrant workers, many white workers saw the Chinese workers as undermining white worker wages. So the perceived logic was that by closing the doors and stopping immigrant workers from coming to Canada, 
workers would not be susceptible to extremely low wages offered by employers. And so they actually sort of presented themselves as we are helping these immigrants. We are making their lives better because they're not coming here and getting really low wages. But in reality, the, the, the idea is that by keeping them out, we keep wages high. Mm. That wage discrepancy is really important and was used to drive a wedge between workers because then you had workers fighting other workers as opposed to workers looking and, and seeing themselves as, you know, as, um, to borrow a sort of a Marxist term, like a class consciousness and, and you know, or, or from developing a class consciousness. So I think that was really interesting to see that these groups were, there were some tensions more on the, like, the ethnic side between the groups, but mm-hmm. I mean, the fact of the matter is that 30,000 workers did walk out for six weeks. And so for a time, I believe that there was at least some level of solidarity. Hmm. And, and I think the reason why they, the, this particular way the filmmakers chose to emphasize this was the, you know, the belief in something better, that something we can accomplish collectively is, is, far, is, is far more inspiring than showing divide and, and division and, and mistrust. I mean, that makes sense, although I have a hard time believing that the white workers would have been as accepting of black workers, indigenous people, etc., as they were in the movie. I think they, there was they, there was very little representation of any sort of tension between those people. Yeah, and, and maybe to borrow an example, like a Winnipeg-specific example from my own research, is in, in the, the packing houses, there was a very rigid hierarchy that that had skill and class and race and gender all tied together Hmm. and so you had the most skilled job or skilled i used as a sort of a a, is a a very problematic term for me but i'm going to use it for simplicity Hmm. is the the skill skilled jobs were usually held by anglo-saxon men and the foremen and the superintendents of these plants were usually Anglo-Saxon, whereas these unskilled quote-unquote jobs were held by European, like European immigrants or, or women who were, were in late when they were brought into, especially in the Second World War, to replace some of the men who were going over to fight. Right. This, this hierarchy was, it was very rigid in this particular workspace. Mm-hmm. And it was that way until after the unions came in, in the, until the forties. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they were all sort of harmonious and, and accepting and, and is, I could agree is a little bit, maybe again, oversimplifying, but mm-hmm. I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, yeah, th- there might've been these tensions, but the fact of the matter is that, Tens of thousands of workers were on strike together for six weeks. That's fair. Building on a, your comment about exclusion of, of Chinese and Japanese workers, I did think it was a little telling of how the movie wanted to portray labor, that there weren't any Chinese or Japanese mm-hmm. laborers, like workers represented in the movie, because I feel like that would have kind of forced them to talk about attention that at least in my view, I think the filmmakers didn't want to talk about. But I will ask you this. So so why do you think the filmmakers wanted to emphasize such a harmonious labor movement as opposed to one that has all these tensions and, and discords? Well, I think there's... 
I don't think it was done with ill intent, mm-hmm. and and I think it was done in a way of, I mean, the at the end of the day, the the movie is an hour and or it's one hundred and ten minutes running time end to end. Sure, and I think that like Winnipeg nineteen nineteen is a very is is still used as a very inspiring story, and and I think that's very interesting for historians, especially those of labor, because. The, again, labor historians point out the the irony that it was a failure, but you know unions and and movements in Canada still point to Winnipeg nineteen nineteen as this big moment. And this movie was released on the one hundred year anniversary of the the general strike. And right. in Winnipeg, they have erected. There's a famous photo where a bunch of protesters and strikers are legitimately rolling over a streetcar trying to prevent it from being operated by a scab worker and that monument now exists in Winnipeg and they had they have built this monument that shows that takes that image of the streetcar kind of listing on its side and they've memorialized it hmm. and there is a a giant brass metal plaque just north of the Manitoba theater company i believe and they if i remember exactly where it was and it has a a, a topographical overview of the downtown core with numbers pinpointing uh, like number plates on the on the map and listing the events in chronological order of what happened during that strike Mm -hmm. so for a lot of people this is a very inspiring moment this is a very this is this is a, a a a time represented when there was a third alternative or there, there was an alternative to, to capitalist mode of production in, in Winnipeg hmm. and in Canada. And I think despite its failure, and we could talk about its sort of the lasting effects and, and how it's been seen outside of Winnipeg later, mm-hmm. but it still is an inspiration. And I think people like to have the inspiring story rather than think about the, you, you know, the, out uh, like the the falling out of of all these groups and the the solidarity and you know the 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 20 years that followed that was you know had brutal labor repression right and and i think that's why the filmmakers probably went that route that makes sense that rings true for me based on my viewing of the movie as well and i think definitely the filmmakers i think they were trying to make a film that was sympathetic to obviously the, the working class and perhaps inspiring to workers today. You know, I think that there was a telling quote in the movie. I forget the exact quote. It's something like, oh, we'll never see a strike like this again for a mm-hmm. hundred years. Yep. I was, I was like, oh, okay. I see what you're trying to do here. Yep. Also on this theme of representations of, of ethnicity and, and immigrants in the film, In the movie, the capitalists and their allies are portrayed as intentionally, very intentionally, trying to drum up or play upon people's bigotry in order to turn the public against the strike. They emphasize that the strikers are immigrants and their messages that these immigrants can't be trusted. They stoke fears that... Bolsheviks have made their way to Winnipeg, so that you know fears about the Russian Revolution being being sort of imported to Winnipeg. And the main villain of the movie 
is A.J. Andrews, who is based on a, a real historical figure. Actually, a few of the characters in this are based on, not the, not the main couple, but a lot of the characters in this are based on real people. Mm-hmm. And A.J. Andrews was a real person who led the, the Citizens Committee, and he's almost cartoonishly villainous in this movie, yeah. right? He's like, he's like there's scenes where he's sitting at his typewriter and he's typing these headlines like, and the headlines are things like, can we trust immigrants? Question mark. Yeah. You know? <laughs> sort of like the a Tucker Carlson kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of looks like him too. Anyway, so was this a thing that happened for real in the history of the Winnipeg General Strike? Did Capital and its allies attempt to make villains out of the immigrants in the press? Oh, I mean, absolutely. And and I think any anyone who studies Canadian labor history realizes that this is a recurring pattern. It is not a isolated event or something that is done infrequently. And, and I think that there is, it was so easy to do in Winnipeg. And for those who are not really familiar with the geography of Winnipeg, there is a, there are two rivers. And so if you picture a clock, and there is a river that runs from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock, like right through the middle. And there is a river that runs from the 9 o'clock to the center. And they meet in the center, and that's Winnipeg's The Forks, mm-hmm. which Lewis was referring to earlier in the, in the podcast. And there's the railway lines, the railway tracks that help bring Winnipeg to its prominence in Canadian economic history run through just like sort of on the north side. So if you took like that northern half of that clock there's there would be a set of rail lines that go through the north side of the city and in that north side is where a lot of the immigrants were were living and they were sort of like physically segregated from the rest of society so a lot of those scenes that were shot there was a few scenes where the staff of the like the domestic staff of these houses are walking out to join the strike those were filmed in sort of these ritzy what would be called like nor uh, river heights mm. and in the river heights neighborhood and there's these gorgeous homes that look like mansions and that's where the anglo elite lived but on the north side is where the immigrants are so in the in the scenes where they have these buildings really close together with clothes just sort of hanging ad hoc on whatever they could string up it, on on what workers could string up or where these immigrants are living in boarding houses and and shacks essentially and and I think it was it was very easy for capital and allies and employers to be able to drum up that support because people didn't really go north into the like into the north end and to this mm-hmm. day the north end still has negative connotations about it mm-hmm. so the fact that capital like so this AJ Ross guy has like a clear scapegoat as to what's going on and, and can try and jump drum up support for, or from typing these, you know, fear mongering headlines and sort of these mat, like these really problematic rhetorical questions, you know, it was, it was very easy to do. Hmm. So, you know, I think, I think that's, that's a pretty accurate portrayal, but it's, it's certainly not unique in its application. Right. Okay, that makes sense. That's uh, that's an interesting perspective. I didn't know that piece about the, the geography of Winnipeg. That's interesting. So based on that, that or not maybe not totally based on that, but following from that answer, you're talking about the, the portrayal in the press, and I'm also thinking about how, the general Canadian public, reacted to the strike. We don't really get a sense for this in the movie, actually. So I'm curious, 
What did the Canadian public think about the strike? Especially outside of Winnipeg, we really don't see, was there a desire to emulate the Winnipeg general strike in other cities? Or were people aghast and, and didn't want to replicate it? What did, I mean, probably some of both, but like, what, what, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, and I think that's one of the fascinating parts or one of the most fascinating parts about this story is that Winnipeg was actually hardly alone or exceptional in this period. For example, there was a one-day general strike in Vancouver during September 1918, even before the war was over. Hmm. And that one-day general strike was actually part of the inspiration for the strike in Winnipeg in May 1919. Hmm. And so when the Winnipeg general strike was in, it was going on, there were sympathy strikes is in like Brandon, Manitoba. There were in Vancouver, in Victoria, British Columbia, Regina, Saskatchewan, and I believe as far away as Halifax. Hmm. And and I think for the politicians and employers of this country, they viewed the strike with the same suspicion as those in Winnipeg, while the working classes saw this as a major inspiration. But I think it's also worth noting that many of these sympathy strikes did not last as long as in Winnipeg. So certainly the Canadian public, and I think the international public, was paying attention to what was happening there. But it was hardly the only period of unrest. Like you could have, you could say that 1919 was one in a series of strikes between November 1918 and, say, June 1921, mm. in terms of sort of social unrest as the world transitioned out of war and back into a peacetime economy. I want to ask you now about the strikers' goals. The movie suggests that the strikers are mainly looking for improvements to their wages, without really upturning the capitalist system and imposing a, a socialist or communist society. There's one character who seems like that's his goal, but then this sort of twist at the end of the movie is he's actually in the pocketbook of A.J. Andrews. He, he's being paid off to try to make the strike look bad and make it look more radical, perhaps, than it actually is. I'm curious how this matches up with the historical reality, where the strikers really mainly just after wage improvements, or were they after a more significant change to the system? I think it started out as wage improvements, and I, and I think, I mean, it ultimately it started out with wage improvements. Mm -hmm. That's how most strikes start, and sure. or, or union recognition. And I think it's important to note, again, or to reemphasize, that the union's as a, as a democratic structure in Canadian society were not fully legalized or recognized until the end of the second world war, which is almost 10 years after like the Wagner act in 35. Now you, you mentioned this earlier as well. I don't really know what it means. The unions are recognized. What does that mean? Like they have some sort of government status. They're like employers are required to, Make agreements with them. Like, what does that what does that mean practically? Yeah, so it, I should give a little bit of context here. In in Canada, unions when I when I mean like uh, recognition is that employers do not have to bargain with unions. So we're in in you might know this from your own workplace is that at least in Canada, all unions have to operate in what they call a closed shop, which essentially means that everyone who works in that space has to be part of the union. They pay union dues whether they agree to it or not. And before PC-1003 and, and the RAND formula after the 1947-48 Ford-Windsor strike, 
they unions did not have this closed shop. So people could work in in situations where some members were part of a union, but some people were not. Mm. And which I think is what makes this really impressive about Winnipeg is that these unions who did not really have a lot of legal backing to go out and strike chose to do so. Mm-hmm. And and I and and so when I say that they're they're you know recognized, it means that like in the in the eyes of the law, they're not a legally binding units that have to arbitrate hmm. or that have to I shouldn't say arbitrate but they might have to in some cases but have to negotiate with the employer hmm. so that's sort of this 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 world that they live in is you know the there are unions here in indeed but they're not as recognized or not operating as as effectively these are this is a very on the ground movement these are very uh, that's where the the shop steward's original job was essentially to collect dues from workers who were in the union and to to promote the union membership in these workspaces. Right. Okay. So cycling back to the original question about the goals of the strike, you mentioned that it it started out mainly about about wages and that sort of thing. Did it eventually transition into something else? I I. I'm still on the fence about this and, and, and even like to this day in terms of, you know, I, I, you sort of want the, the, the aspirationalist in me says they were striving for something better and they were trying to go in and create a better society. But at the end of the day, a lot of people just wanted wages and, and, you know, better wages and, and, you know, health benefits, like, it, like healthcare benefits did not exist for quite a long time even after this even after pc 1000 like even after the second world war you know people just wanted more money in their pockets and and i think it started out as sort of this conversation about wages and in purely economic terms but what it also began to represent was a a new or a, a belief of people saying well we don't have to have you know this way like we've spent all this money and this time fighting this war in Europe and around the world to try and have a, you know, to, we thought society would be better. And very quickly it was becoming apparent that, you know, even towards the end of 1918 and into 1919, that many in Canada, especially those who were politicians or employers wanted to go back to this world like this old world order Hmm. to use sort of a turn of phrase but it's it's basically they wanted to go back to the way things were and a lot of people were saying well you know that doesn't have to be that way we want to have higher wages we want to be able to enjoy you know not living in poverty right we don't want to have to go back to that we want to secure a better future and i think the Winnipeg general strike and we could, I don't know how much more you want to talk about sort of the after effects, but the Winnipeg general strike, those, the per, the labor minister or the person, you know, William Lyon Mackenzie King was in, you know, government as, as is a member of the liberal party and the federal liberal party during this time. And so when he was prime minister at the end of the second world war made sure that there wasn't a repeat of 1919 and made sure to include things to show, you know, basically took off a lot of what the CCF at the time, the Canadian Commonwealth Federation who are now today's NDP 
kind of took a lot of their election platform and implemented it as part of his own. He was also, I think if I remember right, he had been a an industrial negotiator of some kind as well, right? So that yes. was likely a, a priority for him. Mm-hmm. I will ask you about the aftermath, but I have one other question. I don't know if this is a question or just a comment, I guess, because I'm not really sure that... Well, I'll see if you, if you have any any response. But one thing that really struck me about the movie was... So at the end of the movie, there have been these laws passed to prevent strikes, but there's, they figure out that they can march silently down the street. And the Northwest Mounted Police, the Mounties, the predecessor to the RCMP, as you said, are called in to break the strike or, or to, to break up this protest, which is what happened in history. And as you mentioned, that's, that's what ended up ending the strike. Essentially, a couple of people were killed and, and that sort of thing. But in this movie, you never really figure out that it's the Mounties unless you know that it's the Mounties. They don't ever, they just say they're police of some kind. And I was really struck by this. I wondered, it was strange to me that they never wanted to actually name the Mounties. Like, was that a, just a, a coincidence or I, I thought it seemed strange. Like, are you not allowed as a filmmaker to like besmirch the good name of the, of the yeah, Mounties? I don't know. That's totally, <laughs> that's totally true. And, and I think those who are familiar with the history of Canadian labor know that 1919 was repeated in Regina on the 1st of Jan- July, 1935. It was the yeah. same thing. And and, and I wonder if there were, because a film like this is definitely not getting support or funding from somewhere like Columbia Pictures, who kind of has the, you know, the wherewithal to, you know, portray what they want, right? Mm-hmm. Or Warner Brothers or some, or Disney now, I guess, is Disney mm. are overlords. And I think they, I wonder if there was certain, stipulations of saying you cannot use Mountie garb in this particular manner because they were, they were definitely not wearing Mountie uniforms. Now that's not an uncommon practice either is to, to, to have a different or non uniform on, but still uniform when you're trying to break a strike. But I think it's, it's also very telling to say, wow, like the, they bring in the police Mm -hmm. and they bring in, you know, like the because I think the police in the in the story anyway the police are are essentially all fired and they bring in these vet, um, the veterans to replace them yeah or the veterans who want to to replace them and then these the this monolithic abstraction of police figure is set in place of saying instead of saying the RCMP or the Northwest Mounted Police so I think that was very interesting. It was interesting, yeah. I don't, I don't have a good explanation for it, but it, it stood out to me as like, especially for a film about, or a film that I think is intended to be inspiring to to workers and labor movements in the present. It was weird that they kind of waffled on c- calling out the Northwest Mounted Police. So that was weird to me. I yeah, I wonder if it's a condition of some grant or something like that that the film received. Yeah, I and and that doesn't surprise me because there's, I mean, the mounted police. I mean, the 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 RCMP has a very fascinating history, which would could be its own separate podcast. Yeah, but there's a fascinating history of of the uses and 
ways that the RCMP has been used that don't necessarily align with the images of the noble officer on their horseback. Yeah, certainly a much less squeaky clean record than Dudley Do-Right would have you yes, believe. exactly, the Dudley Do-Right stuff. One thing we don't see in the movie, which you alluded to earlier, is the aftermath of the Winnipeg general strike. What came of it? What were its lasting impacts? I mean, we mentioned already that it's sort of an inspiring point in history, an inspiring memory to to workers in, in the future, in the future from 1919, so in the present, in the, in the mid-20th century and so forth. But what are some other lasting impacts? Well, I think, and the film talks about this a little bit, is many of the people who were involved, like strike leaders and and workers who were involved actually went on to be in politics. So that let's, okay, so let's backtrack. The immediate aftermath for workers, not good. They didn't see any wage increases. They, some of them had to tear up their union cards. Many of them had to go back to work signing no strike clauses, saying that they would never walk out again. And so it was actually a very crushing defeat for labor and really showed the power of government and capital in one, you know, coordinated blow. But I think a lot of those lessons learned on both the employer side and the worker side very much informed the Second World War's conclusion. So a lot of these workers who were in the, like J.S. Woodsworth, he wrote Strangers Within Our Gates, and he was living in Manitoba, uh, Winnipeg's North End when he wrote that book. And this is before the general strike. And, and he went on to, to go into the CCF. Hmm. A lot of people went into the CCF. Many people were elected into the Manitoba, Manitoba legislature, the Winnipeg City Council, federal. I don't think there were many federal politics, but, you know, the, the CCF was sort of a, a realization of this, even though it was, you know, formed in during the Great Depression. And... But I think for, for capital as well, when the Second World War was coming to a conclusion, and I think even though the First World War sort of concluded within six weeks, you know, there was a really sort of a clear, you know, the United States entered, and then it was boom, overdone, you know, within a year. And I think the Second World War had a little bit more of a run-up, even though it took longer to finish. I think many people kind of understood you know, as, as early as 1944 or 40, like even 1943 in some cases where they're like, okay, we're probably going to win this one out, hmm. that they had started planning for a post-war recovery and a post-war world where there that social unrest that had, ocu- that had sort of occupied that space following the First World War would not repeat itself. Hmm. And that's where we see essentially Canada's modern social security net or social welfare state develop. And and I think that's from a lasting implication of people saw what happened in 1919, 1920, 1921, and went, let's not have this happen again. That makes sense. Anything else you want to say about the movie that, that we haven't got to? I mean, I, I guess I'll also ask you, did you like the movie? <laughs> yeah, as someone like I had done theater as in high school, uh, throughout my whole mm-hmm. high school career, my dad was a high school theater teacher and mm-hmm. sort of appreciating the the work of trying to do a musical on film. Yeah. And I'm thinking for those who are theater fans, I'm thinking Rent has been done brilliantly. But mm-hmm. the idea that of, of trying to create something 
because really there's a, a sort of a lot that happens at the beginning of the strike and then sort of this big conclusion on Bloody Saturday and then that's it, mm-hmm. right? There's not a lot going on in the middle. And I think that's where we see this this fictional Romeo and Juliet storyline come into play yep. is to try and sort of help fill those gaps and, and sort of create some tension in, in the, in the environment. I mean, I like the film. I think it was mm-hmm. really well done trying to incorporate a lot of elements that were going on and a lot of nuance that is, is hard to sort of a lot of exposition. That's really hard to just sort of lay out. And like, you don't want to have, a film start with like Star Wars style role credits sort of explaining <laughs> yeah. the nuance right. of what's going on. And I mean, we've talked at length for almost an hour now and you know, we're still not entirely through everything. So yeah. um, to try and condense that into a, um, you know, 110 minute film, I think was, was really well done. I agree that some of the characters were maybe a little like, like you said, there was Andrews was just maybe a little over the top, mm. but you know, I think others were, creating a compelling story. And, and I think the ultimate goal of the film was to say like this, this people sought a better future and went out and did the work to obtain it. Mm-hmm. Or at least they went, they went and did the work. They didn't obtain it right away, but they went and did the work anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I thought that was a very accessible film for someone who is maybe a little unfamiliar with, with, Winnipeg and and the general strike and maybe has is, is sort of maybe now has a few questions that they want to read into themselves whether that's going on to the Canadian Encyclopedia or Wikipedia or whatever mm-hmm. that they're at least going to look into it right that makes sense did you did you like the film um I mean like yes and no I think it was a in terms of like its portrayal of history I think it's a a thoughtful portrayal of the Winnipeg general strike and that is always a plus in the, you know, there certainly you could just make a different story that would have the Winnipeg general strike as just background for the plot, but not really care about any of the actual history or details or that sort of thing of the events. And so I think that the, the creators have done a nice job of that. Generally, as, as we pointed out earlier, it's not a perfect representation. There's some like, there's some issues here and there. But I think overall, it's pretty good. I think as a as a movie, I was like, mm, it's not the greatest movie I've ever seen. It was like it was okay. I mean, like I was happy to watch it. I feel like some of the some of the songs were uh, a little iffy. I, to be honest with you, I I I've had that one song. It's like the the like domestic servant right. woman sings it. And then they also like do a refrain at the end when she sings about like the strength, strength to move boulders. And I've had that stuck in my head for days now. Oh no. I, I also, I just, I also thought it was weird. Some of the characters have accents, right? Like the Ukrainian character mm-hmm. has like a, an accent, but then when he sings, he no longer has the accent, which I thought was we- kind of weird. But it was, it was like, I think a pretty, it was like, an, I, I'd encourage people to watch it, even yep. though I don't think it's like the greatest movie of all time. You know, you might learn some history stuff and it's like cool to see a movie that is completely made in Winnipeg as well. Yeah. And, and I think the only actor who retained their, their accent while singing was Stefan's father. Yes. Yeah. And I thought that was really, that was really well done to sort of be able to sing 
with that accent. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I, I agree. Like some of the, the songs where I'm thinking like, okay, like I see what you're trying to do, but it's also based off a, a musical. And, yeah. and, and I feel that I felt that some of the songs were, I felt the song placements were a little strange to have. There was one part, I think in like have partway, maybe like half hour in, there's like three songs in a 15 minute span and your things are starting to pick up and you're snapping your fingers and you're getting ready to go. And then there's a very extensive period of time where it's very much just, you know, action, like no songs, very, you know, content heavy thinking like, wow, okay, so we're back to this. And then sort of, they tried to almost make up for it at the end a little bit <laughs> where they made, they put mm-hmm. more songs in. Right. So right. I thought that was, I thought it was a little strange, but I, I also, understand that trying to move a a a two-act play into a three-act film is strange and and odd and the you know it doesn't always line up perfectly the tempo doesn't always line up for sure for sure i always ask my guests this question about whatever our topic is what was your favorite thing about the movie as a as a representation of the winnipeg general strike and also if you were the director of the film and you could make one change, what would your change be? So if I, that's a very good question. I, the one, like the, my favorite thing about it was the fact that they never, they didn't try to over dramatize it. Mm. Right. I didn't, I did not find myself in a position thinking, okay, that's a little over the top mm. or, you know, like that kind of happened, but you're over dramatizing events. You know, I was I was really impressed with how they were able to, or how they like the, that they chose to stick to to a very somewhat close representation of what's going on. They didn't, you know, you see some of those films where it says, you know, based on the true, based on a true story, and like the place and the names of the people are the same, but they're, you know, everything else is just completely different. Yeah, Braveheart, or <laughs> yeah, Braveheart, right? Like sort of like a Braveheart style thing. Yeah, and I think though, if I was the director. And and maybe this is from my background in in sort of photography and and film doing mm-hmm. is I would change some of the shots that they were trying to do because and I, and I think we kind of spoke about mm-hmm. this off off podcast a little bit earlier was yeah you know they were doing some really nice shots but they weren't very well coordinated so you had this you know gorgeous shot of them walking along like uh, Stefan and Rebecca were walking along the Red River it was a really nice day it was you know they they had it right i mean it was that's what it looks like in Winnipeg in May mm-hmm. and and then sort of in the corner of the frame you can see you know St Boniface Hospital <laughs> or or you could see like a car go over a bridge and you're like well okay <laughs> you know i maybe that's not you know i think i would have spent maybe a little bit more time you know, even just bringing the camera in six feet mm. might have done the difference, or just twisting the zoom a little bit. But other than that, I, I I don't have a lot of things where I would say that is a moment where I would definitely change and flip and 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 move or or remove or do differently. That's fair enough. You said you did musicals in high school. What uh, what's your favorite musical that you that you did in high school? Oh, so I I never actually I can't. Like, well, I shouldn't say I can't sing. I choose not to sing in front of others. Hmm. But I did, I was the the stage manager for a show called Putnam County Spelling Bee. Okay. And it is one of my favorite musicals of all time. It is brilliantly well written. It is meant for all kinds of audiences. And it is incredibly funny. 
And a lot of the people that I did that musical with, I'm still friends with today. And, mm. and again, even though I didn't necessarily perform in it, I did all the, 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 the lighting and sound cues and, and made sure <clears> that the show was ready to go. And that was, that, that stands out as my, in my mind as something that was really well done. Mm. Uh, so if anyone is looking for a musical to watch, check out Putnam County Spelling Bee whenever it rolls through <laughs> town. Or I think you could probably find some, some not so legal videography on youtube <laughs> if you wanted to find right. it but it's it's it is highly recommended right okay i also did, i did some acting in in high school we did a production of have you ever watched a very potter musical i have heard about that but the problem was i never read harry potter growing up so all of these oh, references wow. go over my head yeah it wouldn't be that good if you haven't read the books or seen the movies but it was fun we did that in high school i was Severus Snape, which was very, very goofy. Ooh. Yeah. That seems on brand. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that you, <laughs> I, I seem Snapey to you. <laughs> i got to change my image up. Uh, <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> anyway, good place to end the show. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and telling us some stuff about the Winnipeg General Strike. I sure learned a lot. Do you have anything you'd like to share with the audience? If you want them to, like, I don't know, follow you on Twitter or, or projects you'd like to share or anything like that? You feel, um, if people want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at NickFastMA, fast as in the adjective. And I'm not really doing any projects right now, but I encourage people to listen to Lewis's other podcasts that are very well-informed with fantastic guests who are, you know, like Deef and Bunker and Age of Empires and all sorts of different ideas and things the way that we interact with history. So I totally encourage you, if you're not going to look up at any of my stuff, I encourage you to please <laughs> look at other, Lewis's other work. So that's, that's very kind. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. And that's very kind of you. The guests are good. The host is like, whatever. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> all right. Take care. Yep, you as well. That's it for today's interview. Thanks for sticking around until the end, and thank you to Nick for joining me on the show. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, I'll include a couple of reading recommendations in the show description. And if you'd like to see some historical photos from the Winnipeg General Strike, check out our Instagram and Facebook pages, at Off Campus History. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review or consider recommending it to a friend. That sort of thing genuinely helps me out a lot. If you're a fellow historian who'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you have any comments you'd like to send in, feel free to contact me at offcampushistory at gmail.com. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, which coincidentally was also recorded in 1919, the same year as The Strike, which I did not do on purpose. Also, artwork for the podcast was made by Nefkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more Off Campus History. <laughs> <laughs>